This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Welcome to Grief Relief. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, and my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley, and daughter, is not with me today because she's uh, on a panel at uh, Columbia University where she teaches. So, uh, but I have a great guest today, and it's going to be very interesting. It's Elizabeth Heineman, and Elizabeth is a professor at the University of Iowa where she teaches courses on gender and sexuality, European and German history, and the history of human rights. And we have Elizabeth on today because Elizabeth has written a wonderful memoir, and it is a really tough subject that I am so glad she's approaching to give us information on stillbirth. And uh, she writes a book called Ghost Belly, and it's not only, it's done, uh, you can get it from the Feminine Press, she wrote it in 2014, but it's not only on having a stillbirth, but it is on having a home birth uh, with a midwife and a stillbirth and her experience. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the show and also for the courage to write this book. Thanks so much for having me on your show. You know, let's start out. I, I I was thinking about where I wanted to start with you, and you know, I'd like to start at the at the beginning of your baby Thor. Um, you found out you were pregnant. Were you excited? Was it planned? Had you had other children? It was a planned pregnancy, very much wanted. I had an older child who, at the time, was actually already sixteen from a previous relationship um, with a woman. She and I, in the meantime, had broken up. Um, were very congenial. And then I got into a new relationship with my current partner, who's still with me, Glenn. Um, He and I decided that we wanted to try again. I'd always wanted another child. He didn't have any children, had always wanted children. So even though I already had a 16-year-old, we decided to give it a try. And um, I got pregnant. Well, that must have been very exciting. Do you remember the moment when you celebrated? Absolutely, absolutely. We were were just thrilled. We were thrilled. So when, at what point did you decide that you might, did you do a home birth with your daughter? Uh, with my older son, yes. I did have a home birth. Oh, it was a uh, That was in Berlin, Germany. And uh, they, they were basically a, uh, in, in much of Europe, certainly northern Europe, midwifery, out-of-hospital midwifery is much more uh, integrated into the maternal health care system. So I had had that experience with my older child already. So you and ha- then we decided, an experience. I wanted to do it again with my second child. Mm-hmm. And so you had a good experience with the first child, obviously, or you wouldn't have done it with the second. That's right. No complications whatsoever. Very simple. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, everything went. Uh-huh. And, and uh, Thor was full term? Thor was full term. Um, you know, what happened is I, I uh, established a relationship with a certified nurse midwife. My pregnancy was a low-risk pregnancy, so this was kind of gold standard uh, planned home birth with a certified nurse midwife with a low-risk pregnancy. Um, She had a couple of decades' experience, had never had a bad outcome. Um, So so we went ahead and we made plans. Uh, I had also seen the the midwives in the hospital, and they had given their blessing to have this as an out-of-hospital birth because it was a low-risk birth. Mm-hmm. And, and and by the way, there are, there is some risk at the hospital of infections and that kind of thing. So, yeah, and so you've, you've done it before. You're ready for uh, this. I'm sure uh, Glenn was very excited. I mean, I, I, you know, being at your home has got to be kind of an amazing experience. Um, but it didn't turn out to be so with you. Talk a little bit about what happened. 
instance, it didn't. Um, in this case, you know, of course, uh, you know, as you say, sometimes you know, there's stillbirths in hospital settings as well. Sometimes things just go wrong. Uh, sometimes there's things that couldn't have been avoided given the current state of medicine, and sometimes there's things that could have been avoided. Um, in my case, what happened is I was, I was post-date. Uh, we were doing non-stress tests every other day. I, I was, it was clear that the baby was healthy. Oxygen was still good, plenty of amniotic fluid. Um, but then there was a sudden placental abruption, um, and uh, the baby was still born. Sudden placental abruption means that there's, there's, the baby gets no more oxygen from one moment to the next. And at that point, um, it, it's hard to do anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we, had, we had the stillbirth, um, you know, it, it, in my home. Uh, as soon as the baby was there, um, it, you know, it was possible then to call the ambulance. Things really happened too quickly uh, before then. We went to the hospital, and it was clear that I wasn't perfectly, you know, I wasn't hemorrhaging. I was completely safe, out of danger. Um, but, you know, but it was a stillbirth, um, and it was, of course, quite crushing. Not at all what we'd expected. Oh, of course, of course. It must have been, a, you know, the traumatic. It, I mean, th- there's always, you know, I've had four children but in, in the hospital, but there's always that moment right before they're born where there's a little tension in the room, and, and I'm a nurse also, so there's always that, that time when everybody holds their breath for a few minutes. Right, right. And in this case, right, in this case, it just, it just didn't work out. Yeah. Um, you know, the difficulty uh, then is that, of course, um, I, I think all mothers who experience stillbirth ask themselves whether something might have gone differently, and they, they sometimes beat up on themselves a little bit. Maybe I should have stopped picking up my toddler. And, you know, maybe I should have drunk wine before I even knew I was pregnant. Um, sometimes you have questions about the doctors in the hospital. You know, I went to my last prenatal checkup, and I reported decreased fetal movement, but the doctor said, well, just go home and monitor and let me know the next day. And then, you know, you wonder whether maybe the doctor should have been a little more proactive. Um, in my case, of course, what I did have to ask myself is whether things might have gone differently um, had it not been a home birth. And it turns out to be a very complicated question. People often sort of think of this as kind of a black and white issue, home birth versus hospital birth. But, of course, there's a whole range of things that happen in both settings. And when you're looking at any particular case, whether it's hospital or home birth, what you really need to do know is, well, what exactly happened in this case? What, right. was, what was the medical reason? Right. Were there particular points along the way where one might, where intervention might have been possible, or was there not? So, so the question really came down much more to my particular case than to the question of hospital birth versus home birth. Right. Um, having said that, of course, um, one thing that does happen, um, you know, when you have a stillbirth in that kind of situation, many other people do um, make a lot of assumptions. Right. Yeah. What kind of things would they say? Because I know, you know, when you're talking about um, that, could you have done something differently? I've done a lot of shows, you know, on um, not stillbirths, but babies who died in utero, um, where people have had miscarriages, that kind of thing. Some of what you're saying is true across the board. Even uh, my daughter, Heidi, who's had uh, more than one miscarriage would say, you know, did I drink too much Coke? I mean, Heidi says it just becomes, you know, down to the down to the smallest things, you know, should I have exercised more, should I have exercised less, you know, uh, all these all these things can come into play. And then you've got the other thing coming into play, which was the home birth. So how do people react to that when they hear that you had a, a stillbirth at home? Well, of course, most of, you know, my friends and family, you know, what they were concerned was with the tragedy of it all and the sadness. And they had looked forward to this baby, too, and they knew that Glenn and I were grieving, and people had, of course, simply enormous empathy. 
um, and many of the people who are my, you know, my, my closest friends, um, you know, have a somewhat deeper knowledge of home births. So, you know, knows that basically the overwhelming majority of births in both settings go fine. Um, that a full birth really is a rare exception. It's not as rare as we tend to think it is, but nevertheless, the overwhelming majority of births in both settings are fine. But what does happen is once you get outside that narrow circle of friends and family, um, there are people sort of out there in the wider world who, who can um, sometimes, you know, clearly cast, you know, cast judgments. Um, you know, say, sometimes people will say insensitive things, I made the wrong choice, that sort of thing. Um, we'll have questions about the midwife's uh, role in all of this. And, of course, again, we have to ask the same question in the hospital birth. Was it possible that the doctor made a judgment call that wasn't the right judgment call? Um, but people do tend to, you know, home birth in this country is a, a, very, um, a very passionate subject. So people do tend to um, sometimes get very heated in their evaluation of, of, of what must have gone wrong when something does go wrong. Well, t- talk about writing your book and the, and the role of writing your book. Um, how did that help you? And I, I think that, you know, I've taught at a university, and I think it was a courageous move as a faculty member for you to write this book. Well, you know, I, I didn't really sort of think, gee, I need to write about a book about this. It'll be useful to other people. What happened is basically the morning after I came home from the hospital, I just started writing. Um, I've never been one to keep a journal, but suddenly it just felt very necessary to write a lot. Um, and I wanted to, I think I wanted to not just journal, but really spend a lot of time with this project. And I think in some way, you know, I was supposed to be mothering a newborn. And mothering a newborn is a very intense experience, and this child kind of takes over your life in a way. And I, um, I wanted this child to be with me. And writing this book was a way to keep him with me, to make him a presence in my life, and in a sense to give him some shape and some reality. Um, so to, you know, I, I couldn't give him um, at that point his own life to live in the way he might choose to live it. But I think by writing, it was important for me somehow to sort of claim a space for him in the world. And also I wanted to, I just wanted to interrupt you here because the other thing that you did to build those memories and to have him as a space in your world, which is unusual to a lot of people, is you took him home. You found out that you could take him home from the hospital, and you talk about this in the book. Talk about that. For me, that was really the emotional heart of the experience and the emotional heart of the book as well. Um, you know, As you know, once upon a time, you know, even in the hospital, if there was a stillbirth, the nurses whisked the baby away and the mother never got to see it. Um, I was able to see and hold Thor in the hospital um, and sing to him and, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. Tell me something about Thor. Was he, how, how, how big was he? Did he have hair? You know, some babies were born with a lot of hair. Some aren't. What did he look like? Well, Thor was, was a, a pretty chunky kid. He was about, I think, 8 pounds, 9 ounces. You know, he was, he was full term, so he was full size. He had very, you know, very fair, thin, light hair. Um, so he wasn't one of these full head of hair babies. Um, and otherwise, you know, he looked like a full-term baby. Um, he, was, he was completely formed, you know, every, every, you know, completely formed. When I got him in the hospital, they had tried to resuscitate him. And because there was going to be, you know, an, an, an autopsy, an investigation, um, the intubation tube was still in him. They couldn't change anything about him. And they let me know that ahead of time. They said, we're going to bring him to you if you want, 
but you do need to know that there will be an intubation tube. And I said, that's fine. He, you know, he was, he had, he was still bloody, you know, with, with meconium on him. Um, they, he had not washed again. They, they had to let that wait. And that was fine for me. I wanted to hold him in whatever condition he was in. Um, so it was very, he was, of course, still warm. Um, and that was very important for me. The next day we went to the funeral home and um, I learned from, the, you know, we were talking about what about arrangements about burial versus cremation and timing and the service and all these kinds of things that we didn't want to have to think about, but we did. And then along the way, the funeral director, who in my mind is in many ways the hero of this book, said, you know, you can, you can come visit him anytime you want. And I didn't know that. And then he said, you know, you can take him home, for heaven's sake. And I said, really? And I had no idea. And in the meantime, I've learned um, about the home funeral movement. And I'm, I'm a big fan. You know, we all think about old movies we've seen where the body lies in state in the living room and people come and they talk to it and they hold its hand. My grandmother was in her house in a coffin when I was 12. Yeah. And, and she, I, you know, she was upstairs and people could just... <laughs> I think about it. It was pretty amazing. It was great. Yeah. So, there, so there's, there's, a, there's a way of saying goodbye in a very intimate way that that enables. Nowadays, it's not the norm anymore. But in most states, this, this is regulated state by state, in most states, it's legal. Um, and there's certain things you have to do. There are certain regulations. But if you know what those are, you can do that. And for me, it was a very meaningful thing to be able to bring Thor home. Thor had spent time in the hospital. He'd been handled by the doctors that performed the autopsy. He'd been in the funeral home and handled by the people there. I wanted to have him in his home. I wanted him to be able to inhabit his home, and I wanted to inhabit home with him. So we brought him home. We carried him from room to room. We showed him around. Um, we had him on the sofa and read to him. We did the things that, that, that we would want him to have experienced and that we wanted to experience with him. And that made it so much easier for me than finally to say goodbye because I felt that I had a chance to really say hello and really welcome him into our home before then indeed finally saying goodbye to him. Well, tell me, for people who are, are listening now and have had a loss of a baby, a stillbirth, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that helped you uh, bringing him home, uh, writing about it, writing the book? Uh, were there other things that helped you? Because I know there are a lot of hormones slushing around and all that kind of thing after you have a baby. Did you find anything particularly helpful? You know, I was lucky in many ways in that first, first I had no physical complications, but, of course, I did start to lactate. You know, as you say, there's a lot that physically happens at birth, and, you know, lactation really seems like adding insult to injury, and I just have to deal with it. I was lucky in that um, my partner and I have very good communication. And, of course, for many couples, um, miscarriage or stillbirth with the loss of a child can be a really a real critical moment in their own relationship. For me, it was important that my partner and I communicated well we understood that we weren't going to experience this exactly the same way, but that we both wanted to support each other however we did experience it. Um, that was critical. My partner had an established um, relationship with a therapist who he continued to see, and that was important for him. I didn't have an established relationship with a therapist. A couple of times I visited a therapist um, 
and discovered really that the therapists were very sympathetic, were offered a great deal of help, but it was clear to them and to me that what mattered most for me really was the writing. So they kind of gave me their blessing. They said, you know, you're, you're grieving normally. You're not clinically depressed. You're doing good things. You're writing. You've got a good relationship with your partner. You have, you know, your older son brings you joy. That's all good. Um, you know, feel free to check in. Uh, yeah, let me interrupt you. I really like this therapist because to tell you that it's normal, you're making plans, you're thinking about the future, you know, th- those are the things we're looking for when people aren't are, you know, not functioning well. If you're doing your daily living things, grief's a normal response. That's right. And I, I appreciated that the therapist could see that and didn't kind of want to ru- either rush me through grief... Or give you antidepressants. Or, or, exactly, or rush me to a diagnosis of depression. My therapist, you know, the people I saw were wonderful. They basically understood what normal grief is, understood that it takes a lot of time and understood that there are kind of danger zones. You do want to make sure that you're maintaining your relationships with other people. You do want to make sure that you're getting out into the sunshine. You know, you want to do those things, and you want to check in. And, um, and I had very good support that way. That's great. Well, tell people how they can get their, your book and, uh, and find you. Do you have a presence on the Internet for them? I do. The book is called Ghost Bell, and it's published by Feminist Press. It has its own website, that's www.ghostbelly, one word, dot com. Um, you can also friend it, there's a Ghost Belly page on Facebook, or you can go to the Feminist Press website, which is feministpress.org. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the show today, and, and thank you for the courage of writing this book and, and giving people ideas and thoughts about um, their experiences, and uh, we really appreciate you. I appreciate your show. I've listened to many segments, and I, I think it's a real service that you provide to help help communication in this area. Well, well thank you, and God bless. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.